I'm a political analyst and columnist, Danielle Moody. And I'm writer with Jahat Ali. And we've come together to lead you away from the lies and out of the gaslight. This, this is, is Democracy Ish. Absolutely very excited to speak with the host of the Mary Trump show, Mary Trump. This is the Republican Party. There's There aren't different wings of it anymore. The entirety of the Republican Party is a white supremacist, fascist party. Brian, Tyler, Cohen. People are focused on the attacks on democracy. It, they understand that this extremism is leading to further attacks and further erosions of rights. We discuss the serious issues and threats that face our nation. Join us on Democracy-ish everywhere you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Ravi Agrawal, Foreign Policy's Editor-in-Chief. This is FP Live. Welcome to the show. It's fair to say that U.S.-China relations aren't what they used to be. There are tensions in several arenas, and the most significant of those seems to be technology. A few years ago, Washington moved to keep companies such as Huawei out of U.S. infrastructure for fear of Beijing's ability to spy. Today, the issue isn't just about preventing spying, but containing China's very ability to access high-end computing. Last year's Chips and Science Act was designed to cut off Beijing's access to the most advanced semiconductors. I've really come to believe that to understand U.S.-China competition, whether it's tech or anything else, you first need to understand China itself. And there is no one better to read, watch, and listen to than Dan Wang. Dan's an analyst at Gavikal Dragonomics and a visiting scholar at Yale University. And every year, he publishes an annual letter of reflections. These letters are part journalism, part philosophy, part analysis... But most of all, it's essential reading to try and understand the immense changes that China is undergoing in front of our eyes. We've linked his letters in the show notes. So how will competition between China and the United States on technology play out? Who will win? Why? As always, FP subscribers get to send in questions that frame these discussions. If you'd like to do that too, subscribe now. Use the code FPLIVE for a discount. You can also watch these interviews live in video if you go to foreignpolicy.com slash live. For now, let's dive in. Dan, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for the invitation, Ravi. So I'd like to start uh, a few years back to give our audience some context. You've been living in China since 2017, and this is at a time uh, when the Trump administration comes to power It speaks tough about China. It starts placing more tariffs on Chinese businesses. FP viewers are quite familiar with the mood in the United States, which clearly became more hawkish on China and in a bipartisan manner. But tell us about the mood in China regarding the United States and how you've seen it evolve from that time, 2016, to around about 2020. When President Trump was first elected and entered the White House in 2017, I think a lot of Chinese viewed uh, the ascendance of Trump with the same mix of three emotions I'd like to point out. Uh, first, shock, second, bemusement, and third, a little bit of dread. And I think as time went on through the years from 2017 onwards, all the way until 2021, the sense of dread and uh, shock, I think, grew more and more when uh, you know perhaps other countries were able to stick with 
uh, mostly bemusement. So a lot of Chinese felt, you know, a, a great sense of surprise at these escalating tariffs that the Trump administration imposed, that the Trump administration sanctioned not just Huawei, as you were talking about, Ravi, but also many other uh, Chinese technology champions. In fact, it's difficult to name many Chinese tech companies, whether that is Semiconductor SMIC, uh, WeChat of uh, Tencent, uh, ByteDance, uh, Huawei, that did not suffer some form of a very novel U.S. regulatory uh, action uh, against them. And I think, in general, the mood among folks in Beijing, uh, from the leadership uh, onwards, and I would say including the people, is just a less sense of happiness and goodwill and uh, trust towards the United States, that I think the Chinese people are not getting quite all the fine distinctions that the U.S. government officials are sometimes uh, very good at promoting, that they have a campaign against the Chinese Communist Party, that their uh, disagreements are not with the Chinese people themselves. But when the uh, Chinese people see this escalating rhetoric, especially from uh, President Trump, who is not always the most careful speaker about, um, you know, hurt feelings that people felt more and more a sense of being besieged by the U.S. Uh, throughout the Trump years. And so then there's a big election. Trump loses. Biden becomes elected uh, president, you, you know, and then he sort of doubles down on many of Trump's China policies, if not the rhetoric. How does that get received in Beijing? Here is where I think there might be a little bit more of a difference between the people uh, as well as the leadership. I think the uh, leadership in Beijing were, I think, for the most part, pretty prepared that, uh, you know, uh, after Trump, U.S. foreign policy has become fairly consistent, and they did not expect the election of Biden to very substantially change relations um, to, you know, unwind a lot of these tariffs or regulatory actions that they've gotten used to. But perhaps the people uh, were a little bit more expecting that, okay, uh, you can kind of dismiss Trump as you know, put it not so politely, kind of a, a crazy guy, you know, who's in the White House, he says a lot of crazy things. But perhaps Biden, who comes from the party of uh, President Obama, you know, maybe he will be a, a little bit of a better um, salve on the relationship. And that, in fact, has not happened. That, uh, for the most part, I would agree with your characterization that uh, Biden, for the most part, escalated a lot of these technology measures. There are now more firms under U.S. sanctions uh, in terms of technology, and there might be, you know, other bigger, more novel forms of sanctions in terms of perhaps investment restrictions as well. So, as the moods evolve on both sides of this relationship, I want to look a little bit at how technological changes then begin to take place. So the CHIPS Act takes place at the uh, fall of 2022. It is aimed at not only boosting U.S. production of semiconductors, but also extremely limiting China's access to high-end chips. What impact does that have on China? The impact of the October uh, regulations, which was um, a very substantial package limiting China's access, not just to the most high-end uh, semiconductors, which could go into um, AI uh, processing uh, systems, as well as um, you know all sorts of other um, uh, advanced technology, 
business interests, um, but it also limited China's access to the most sophisticated equipment to produce these types of semiconductors. So uh, all sorts of the uh, most advanced equipment is now, uh, for the most part, uh, off limits to China. And I think uh, the Chinese companies are now trying to figure out the actual impact uh, of all of these measures, because for the most part, it is still a little bit unclear about the extent that they are being affected, that there are certainly, um, you know, uh, things that Chinese companies are no longer really able to do quite as well, but perhaps that doesn't have a very substantial business impact. If I'm thinking about something like, you know, the next level uh, AI, things like uh, ChatGPT, these types of consumer products, well, it's not as if uh, most uh, American companies have figured out a great way to monetize a lot of these technologies yet. So these sort of measures are not yet really showing up uh, in terms of company revenue. The other thing to keep in mind is that the stated goal of the U.S. government, and I take them at their word on this, is that for the most part, they are trying to slow down China's ability to reach the upper echelons of uh, AI processing. It is not, for the most part, to prevent their ability to make somewhat simpler uh, semiconductors of the likes that go into uh, washing machines or um, automotives that the bulk of semiconductors, uh, for the most part, are still allowed to go into China. There were some substantial measures that limited China's ability to access leading tools. There were some substantial measures that perhaps limits uh, the ability of Chinese firms to hire American nationals, including green card holders, and that is uh, quite shocking. Um, but for the most part, you know, I think the rest of the world is still trying to figure out how to work with these technologies. The Chinese have built a, a pretty large stockpile of the most advanced chips when they could buy um, these uh, types of equipment. There is still probably going to be some shipment issues in which chips that should not be going to China are in fact taking place because you know these small chips are not always the easiest things to track. And so I think it is still a little bit too soon to say that uh, China is definitely feeling the impact uh, from these measures, that these measures will probably bite over the next few years rather than the next few quarters. When the CHIPS Act um, came into law, how worried uh, were people within the Chinese tech community? In other words, you know, it's one thing to have U.S.-China competition more broadly, you know, in a theoretical sense about two big countries competing on economics, competing for influence, competing over defense uh, in the Indo-Pacific. Um, but it strikes me that the tech sector is different because it has all these additional ripple effects for tech companies, for stock markets, for millions upon millions of engineers um, and product people. And then it has all these second order impacts on contractors and subcontractors at companies around the world. So it really is just a huge move. And I'm curious how this was received within the Chinese tech community by people who work in China, people close to the party, et cetera. I think they, uh, a lot of Chinese entrepreneurs uh, felt uh, a pretty immense sense of shock when they heard about uh, a lot of these different types of restrictions. And I'm extending everything uh, through to the Trump years, that uh, when Trump and former U.S. Trade Representative uh, Robert Lighthizer complained about Chinese trade practices, they were uh, mostly focused on, uh, you know, uh, state-owned enterprises, the, that the uh, Chinese economy was far too much driven by um, the state and the government. 
and less so about the types of entrepreneurial firms that are really driving China's uh, technological growth. But, you know, while the rhetoric of the Trump administration was focused on state-owned enterprises and state practices, the brunt of restrictions came um, on the uh, Chinese entrepreneurial firms, firms like Huawei, firms like ByteDance, which owns uh, TikTok and Douyin, and uh, many other uh, Chinese companies, which perhaps have some state involvement, but formally are, um, you know, some form of private enterprises uh, with Chinese characteristics. And so a lot of these Chinese entrepreneurs, many of whom have been educated in the U.S., many of whom uh, have worked in U.S. firms or uh, in the U.S., are now feeling that, you know, these are uh, companies that uh, really cannot um, be depended upon for, um, you know, business transactions that you never really know if an American semiconductor uh, that you've been buying for the last uh, couple of years will now be cut off by a uh, very secretive, um, very uh, obscure body uh, chaired by the U.S. Department of Commerce that might cut off your access to advanced technologies at any time. Now, when it comes to something like the CHIPS Act, when it comes to the IRA, and as well as the big infrastructure bill, I think that uh, from the Chinese government's perspective, really there should be not too much of a sense of expressed surprise at a lot of these things. That I, my view, a lot of what the CHIPS Act is doing uh, pales in comparison to the mercantilism uh, that has been driven by Beijing, that subsidies are really um, you know, not that egregious of a practice. You know, perhaps there was some shock at the concept of putting some guardrails on U.S. investment that any U.S. company that accepts these billions of dollars of federal subsidies perhaps may not be allowed to invest anymore in the PRC. Um, but for the most part, I think that uh, the U.S. is copying uh, China's, uh, a lot of China's practices, and at that still palely uh, at, uh, you know, what the um, most egregious things that Beijing has done before. Right. The irony of all the criticism of the Biden administration for adopting uh, protectionism and for leading a subsidies race is that everyone's doing it. I mean, the Europeans have done it. China's done it. India's done it as well. I think one thing I wanted to push you on was how effective some of these U.S. curbs on China's ability to either produce high-end semiconductors, chips, or to proliferate its technology around the world, how effective are these measures? Is China able to find ways around it? Or does it mean that in cutting China off from the world when it comes to high-end semiconductors, we're incentivizing China to make immense investments in trying to catch up with the likes of, say, Taiwan or the Netherlands? I think it is a fairly substantial restriction that the U.S. government has crafted, but uh, at the same time, it is still going to be a, a leaky sieve. Uh, you know, the reality of it is is that a lot of chips are produced on on mass. That particular chips are not necessarily very well tracked and that the uh, Chinese entrepreneurs have uh, a great uh, incentive to be able to uh, try to buy the highest NGPUs for their most advanced uh, AI systems. Uh, I saw a uh, story in Reuters uh, just yesterday about uh, Huaxiangbei, which is a uh, electronics ma- market in Shenzhen, where uh, which is certainly the hardware capital for uh, China, if not the world, that a lot of these uh, high-end NVIDIA GPU chips 
are being bid up twice their normal, normal price um, because um, you know people um, are quite keen to get their hands on a what is now a prohibited product. So you know some sort of uh, transshipment is uh, taking place. Some form of smuggling is taking place. And uh, at the same time, I think what this is uh, really incentivizing is that uh, a lot of Chinese companies, uh, which were world-leading companies, uh, whether we think about something like uh, Huawei, whether we think about something like um, ByteDance and Xiaomi, a lot of these companies, which previously had no time for buying Chinese domestic alternatives, uh, they really wanted the best products in the world to be able to manufacture the, um, you know, their own products um, in the world. They really had no time to buy a lot of Chinese uh, technology, procure from Chinese technologies. Um, now they have been uh, very strongly incentivized by the U.S. government to build up the domestic ecosystem. It is not because they are now much more loyal to Beijing's uh, diktats. It is not because they are trying to prove their political credentials to uh, President Xi Jinping. It is because uh, they want business continuity. The U.S. government has denied them a lot of leading um, uh, electronics. And so when I think about uh, China's uh, long-term technology progress, I am still a little bit split on the idea that U.S. Uh, sanctions, U.S. prohibitions have actually set back China's ability to innovate over the longer term. I think it is just as likely that in 10, 15 years from now, we will be able to see a Chinese technology ecosystem, which perhaps may not be quite flourishing, perhaps it has not quite caught up with uh, Western uh, chip makers in every single way, but it is strong enough to serve a lot of domestic needs. And I think that is quite possible because uh, U.S. sanctions have made it so that the track record of U.S. sanctions in places like Cuba or places like Iran or North Korea have generally not toppled authoritarian regimes that has made a lot of domestic supply be about good enough, certainly not world leading, but about good enough to meet at least domestic needs. And I think that is a quite plausible scenario for China. And I think that is um, you know, one of these impacts of U.S. sanctions. So what I'm hearing from you there is that there's short-term pain but not necessarily much change in the longer term trajectory. And I think where China is so different from, say, Iran or North Korea is just its size and its trajectory. And it seems to me what I'm hearing in your words is almost a sense of inevitability um, to China's rise and its ability to uh, lead in uh, high tech areas. Is that right? I would certainly not call China's rise inevitable. I would certainly not call it a, a, a certain fact. In fact, um, I would say that uh, for the most part, um, I am uh, fairly pessimistic about China's uh, long-term uh, economic rise. And I think that is uh, mostly the consensus view, that when you have all of these headwinds, um, demography among them, a structural slowdown in real estate, uh, because property is just not going to be driving so much more of Chinese economic growth, when you have uh, quite a lot more regulatory decisions driven by uh, so many of different uh, of these unpredictable political decisions, when you have a state that is much more focused on driving state-owned enterprises at the expense of entrepreneurial firms, I think the broad view is that China is going to have a harder time, and I'm with that broader view. At the same time, when it comes to something like technology, what I would point out is that you can have, I think, 
broad slowdown in uh, economic growth. You can have structural uh, slowdowns in economic growth. But at the same time, I think that doesn't prevent you from having a flourishing tech sector uh, because these things do not necessarily have to correlate perfectly with the broader economy. That um, my, uh, one of these um, you know, very startling statistics is that uh, China last year became a, a larger uh, auto exporter than Germany because it has just mastered uh, electric vehicles as well as the broader supply chain involving batteries when the rest of the world has been mostly flat-footed on this new technology. That a lot of Chinese auto exports are driven by firms, foreign firms like Tesla. But still, I think it has been a quite remarkable achievement that China has set out to really master electric vehicles and arguably has succeeded very well. I would point out that you don't need you know, a growing population to have an excellent um, semiconductor or really any other manufacturing sector, that you don't need millions and millions of people on these production lines, perhaps a few hundred thousand people or perhaps a few million people is quite enough. You don't need a growing population um, to be able to succeed at a lot of these things. And so what I would keep in mind are two things, that um, certainly it is the case that China's economy is in long-term slowdown. But second, I would say that you know a lot of technologies uh, can be figured out by a, an economy that is still growing at two, three, four percent. That is still pretty good uh, with a very well-educated population now that just has masses of engineers uh, able to work on these sort of things. That structural headwinds to the economy writ large does not have to defeat any particular technology sector. And you are listening to Foreign Policy Live. Remember, you can watch these conversations live on video on our website, foreignpolicy.com. Subscribers get to send us questions in advance that often frames these discussions. So sign up, use the code FPLIVE for a discount. Add a little curiosity into your routine with TED Talks Daily, the podcast that brings you a new TED Talk every weekday. In less than 15 minutes a day, you'll go beyond the headlines and learn about the big ideas shaping your future. Coming up, how AI will change the way we communicate, how to be a better leader, and more. Listen to TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. So many subscriber questions today that I'm going to dive into a few of them, especially because the first of them takes on a topic I wanted to bring up in more detail, uh, and that's AI. So uh, Jeff Bingham writes in to ask whether you think that or whether you agree that AI poses a serious threat from China, and if so, how? With AI, I confuse. I am uh, fairly confused, and um, you know, I'm, uh, I have a, a pretty split mind about China's prowess in AI. I think it is certainly the case that uh, China's leadership cares a lot about AI, that um, top leader Xi Jinping has held a lot of Politburo study decisions, um, Politburo study sessions on the topic of AI in particular, that they have released these AI guidelines. The most well-known one is from 2017, expressing a great desire to lead in AI. At the same time, you know, what can we actually observe from China's AI uh, development? Well, you know, the industry knows that China's uh, AI capabilities and facial recognitions and surveillance are um, pretty world leading, but that answers a pretty um, clear political objective to have greater control over the, the, the people. 
But when it comes to more consumer uses of AI, well, uh, ChatGPT has been with us now for about seven, uh, eight months, uh, in uh, at least in the United States. Um, in China, that is, uh, for the most part, a uh, forbidden uh, product, that there is some um, usage of these sort of things, but it is fairly delimited, and that it is not given to the rest of the population um, writ large. And, you know, in my view, um, at least so far, uh, China's leadership, I think, regards AI much as it does uh, something, a technology like social media. If we can uh, travel a little bit back in time to the days of something like, let's say, 2008, Ravi, you know, we were hearing all these um, great tech platform claims that, you know, Facebook and Twitter are just going to connect the world. It is going to drive all of these um, economic benefits. You know, I think we can um, now think that, you know, for the most part, social media has not really made us more economically productive. You know, has Twitter and TikTok been making us more economically productive? Well, I would argue that TikTok is making me far less uh, productive. And so I think the Chinese government, which has um, you know long banned a lot of these social media companies from uh, operating uh, in the country, regards something like ChatGPT as much more of a uh, company like um, you know social media platforms, which create political problems, um, but not that much e uh, tangible economic benefit. And so if you don't have a lot of these consumer uses uh, feeding into the AI system um, writ large, does that set back China? I suspect it does uh, somewhat. And so therefore, I am, um, you know, I want to be a little bit more agnostic that China is uh, a leading in AI. We're just not really seeing a lot of these things yet. Perhaps that will all change soon. Um, but right now, given their lack of chip access, given the lack of um, consumer behavior where one can learn from more of these um, uses, it doesn't look like it is a terribly compelling moment for China. Mm. And just an add on question there. Um, you know, there's been movement uh, in Europe on trying to regulate AI or at least coming up with frameworks within which to regulate AI. And usually uh, Europe is a leader when it comes to regulating any form of tech. America also is beginning conversations on that front. Where does China sort of ideologically sit when it comes to regulating something as new as AI? Do you think it is more likely to wait and watch and see how other countries handle it first? Or would it be more likely to make some moves domestically for its own uses? So far, China has already released um, some AI regulations, uh, and some of these uh, phrases that the regulatory program uses are um, quite interesting and has provoked uh, a lot of chatter that a lot of um, Chinese generative AI must serve, you know, socialist ends, which, you know, really make a lot of people scratch their heads. A lot of these systems are not very easy to control. Well, how is it going to advance the, you know, socialist uh, causes and uh, socialist rhetoric? And so that has been something that is uh, quite challenging. But in general, um, China uh, usually tends to wait for uh, use cases before uh, having regulation. That was the case uh, with uh, China's tech industry, which was really free wheeling uh, all the way up until you know, something like 2018, 2019, when the government decided to rein it in. And I think uh, for the most part now, uh, China no longer waits for a technology to develop before regulating it. It is much closer in general to European standards of regulation. Uh, China has already imposed some sorts of restrictions, uh, formal regulatory restrictions on AI development. Um, and it is uh, probably not uh, very keen to see this technology proliferate before uh, you know, seeing what sort of controls it can impose.
Mm. And I guess those controls have uh, domestic impacts as well, right? You've, I know you've written about this before, um, about how open source research has driven uh, global coverage of the Uyghur treatment uh, in Xinjiang, other problematic aspects of China's governance. So there are trade-offs here as well as it pursues these kinds of technologies. Yes, that's right. Absolutely. Let me take a few more subscriber questions. Kelly Stark asks, why is it in America's interest to limit China's technical progress? Uh, she goes on to say, many of China's scientists are very skilled uh, and their advances in many fields can benefit all mankind. Why would cooperation or even competition rather than obstruction not be a better policy? But certainly, I agree with the sense that you know science is one of the best public goods uh, one can imagine for uh, an economist. That if the Chinese are uh, able to, Chinese scientists are able to figure out some great breakthrough in, let's say, something like cancer research or nuclear fusion, um, you know, I think that is uh, quite good for the rest of the world. And these things are absolutely not out of the question that the Chinese are doing quite a lot of cancer research, they're doing quite a lot of energy research. And of course, I agree with the sentiment that, um, you know, if the Chinese are able to make these sort of technology advancements, that is good uh, for the rest of the world, including for America. Um, I think the, uh, if I could try to, you know, if I want, had to defend a lot more of the U.S. position, I would say that for the most part, the U.S. government has been pretty consistent in saying that this is about national security, that a lot of these um, advanced chips, then when it comes to, um, you know, a lot of the uh, advanced GPUs uh, that make AI processing possible, well, these things may not necessarily go into missile systems, they may not necessarily uh, go into particular, um, you know, missiles, but um, they are uh, important for processing algorithms. And so uh, semiconductors are an essential dual-use technology, which could be used uh, for warfighting. And I think that the um, US government uh, you know, states, and I certainly take their word for it, that they believe um, this view that a lot of technologies are dual-use, that uh, a lot of um, you know, uh, Chinese activities are nefarious, and there have to be some limits. Now, uh, then, uh, if I, uh, you know, accept this premise, uh, which I do, the question then is, um, to what extent uh, can the U.S. create the best sorts of limits, uh, given that it believes that, uh, you know, some, uh, a lot of Chinese activities are nefarious. And I would say that a lot of U.S. activities, especially during the Trump years, have been uh, very significantly counterproductive, that uh, a lot of the Trump administration's initiatives uh, scrutinizing Chinese uh, uh, scientists or scientists of Chinese origin in U.S. universities um, contributed to kicking out a lot of uh, very skilled scientists that could have been very significantly helping U.S. efforts in all sorts of things. That um, a lot of lives were ruined for very, uh, you know, um, uninteresting, I think, uh, research impropriety issues. So I think uh, my view on this is that we can accept the U.S. position that um, certain technologies are crucial for national security, certain technologies are being abused in China for uh, things that involve human rights uh, uh, violations. Um, but then the question is what to do about it. And my view is that uh, a lot of what the uh, U.S. government has done from the Trump administration, including some of the things that the Biden administration has done, will over the longer term accelerate China's self-sufficiency. And at least when it comes to people-to-people -people exchanges, what the Trump administration has done has been terribly uh, unproductive in driving a lot of uh, professors and scientists out of U.S. universities into Chinese universities. 
Tim Reed, another subscriber, has a great follow-on question. Um, and he says that you say that China's tech competitiveness is grounded in manufacturing capabilities, but there is abundant evidence of China's theft of Western technology in the past. And Canada's Nortel basically went out of business because of it. So his question is, how can the West confront this threat in practical terms without turning into a hostile, closed society? Yes. And that is a major question. And I think that is a, a major dilemma that I think there is no doubt that uh, Chinese companies have engaged in trade secret misappropriation. They forced a lot of um, Western companies in order to do business in China into these joint ventures that have resulted in some forms of technology leakage. And that there has been a pretty clear evidence um, established in criminal court cases that uh, China has uh, engaged in cyber theft and has stolen quite a lot of uh, technology secrets. Um, what I would uh, you know, try to do is to try to contextualize a, a lot of that a little bit, that I think it is undeniable that uh, Chinese uh, actors have done these pretty nefarious things. But at the same time, I think that uh, China's technology progress has not been driven primarily on you know, a lot of these nefarious activities, that uh, China is, um, at this point, the second largest economy in the world, that it has a very large population, that a lot of its um, engineers have gone through a lot of training uh, and a lot of um, education in order to get pretty good at what they do, that a lot of uh, Western firms have entered the Chinese market very much willingly uh, to be able to take advantage of its uh, manufacturing and its labor costs, um, that uh, a lot of these firms um, you know, very willingly trained up a lot of Chinese workers as well as engineers to build the very best products uh, in the world. And so I would say that you know, China is not exactly predestined to become um, you know, the world's uh, technology leader, but I think it is predestined to become a major player in technology. And that uh, China has uh, advanced pretty nicely. Um, it has figured out a lot of different industrial technologies. It has not mastered the uh, absolutely everything that when it comes to the most complex technologies uh, that include examples like aviation or semiconductors, the Chinese are in fact uh, pretty significantly behind, that there is no doubt that they um, engage in all sorts of nefarious practices. But at the same time, they have built a lot. They have built a lot through Western cooperation. They've built a lot because the um, domestic ecosystem is getting better and better trained, that they are engaged much, very much with selling to the rest of the world. And I think that uh, China's rise can, um, it would be far too simple to say that it was entirely driven by theft. I would say that for the most part, that was driven by what Chinese companies and Chinese workers have been able to do. You know, while you were speaking, uh, Dan, uh, Gareth wrote in with a related question, um, and it goes like this. Um, we've seen how some Chinese tech success stories uh, for example, he cites the PowerStar CPU are ultimately deceptions rather than real advancements. And so Garrett's wondering to what degree the perception of China's technological rise stems from real progress versus some smoke and mirrors. I think there is some smoke and mirrors uh, for sure. But at the same time, I think it is uh, undeniable that China has made quite a lot of very significant tech advances, um, especially in the realm of energy. And so, you know, I think that the uh, CHIPS Act, as well as the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, cannot be uh, have been justified if the rest of the world really believed that uh, most or all Chinese tech progress is smoke and mirrors, that it is reacting to a very real threat. 
in which the Chinese have mastered quite a lot of uh, in, uh, industrial goods, that the Chinese are not only assembling iPhone components, but are making some of the most sophisticated items uh, in an iPhone as well. Uh, and that when uh, you could take a look at China's progress in clean technologies, in technologies essential for the green transition, Chinese firms have been doing really well. They control something like 80% uh, of the entire supply chain for solar technologies. They're building most of the world's wind turbines. They're building a lot of the world's electric vehicle batteries, which is why they become such a large um, electric vehicle exporter. And when you take a look at, um, you know, segment by segment, when it comes to 5G technologies, when it comes to a lot of other types of electronics, the Chinese have been doing quite a lot. Uh, they have been very successful at it. They've certainly had pretty prominent failures uh, in terms of semiconductors as well as aviation, um, in which they are years and years behind, and perhaps they will close the gap. But I think um, we, we cannot say that all of it is smoke and mirrors. Some of it, yes, uh, for sure, um, but they have um, come um, into a pretty nice uh, industrial segment where they are, you know, I would say, arguably uh, closing in on uh, Japan and Germany on a lot of these different technologies. And what the U.S. government is really trying to react against is that they are not closing in on the U.S. Uh, you know, prize um, industries of semiconductors and aviation. Mm. You know, Dan, I was struck by how you said earlier uh, in this conversation that when the Trump administration was in power and imposed all these sanctions on China, and then the Biden administration continued on with them, that there was a general sense of shock. Uh, among uh, Chinese business people uh, in the government. And um, it got me wondering, because here in the United States, there's so much talk in the foreign policy community about a recent shift from talking about decoupling with China to instead de-risking, a more neutral word, I think. But uh, do these terms and the nuances within them get translated in Chinese media? Is it something that you pick up on in conversations with people in the industry? There has been a certainly state media pushback against the term of de-risking. Um, but you know how exactly to translate de-risking is uh, a little bit of a uh, term of art because I think that uh, for most of the world, they are trying to translate uh, the term de-risking to um, their own domestic audiences. That I think the policy itself is still you know quite vague and uh, uncertain. When we think about a term like de-risking, um, I have a colleague uh, at Yale, uh, Paul Gowertz, who's pointed out that when you talk about a term like de-risking, it could mean um, uh, at the same time reducing the amount of risk or eliminating um, risk completely. So, you know, which is it? Yeah, I think uh, every country is going to have a different way of interpreting that word. And given these, um, uh, you know, that there is a little bit of an ambiguity, uh, perhaps even a contradiction uh, in the term in English as we understand it, well, it's going to be all the more confusing for the rest of the world. And so I think that um, de-risking is a word that sounds very nice, um, sounds quite a lot less, let's say, violent than decoupling. Um, but, you know, as um, what it actually uh, um, means, I think we're going to figure it out as we uh, go along. And it is going to drive a lot of different, a lot of variation um, between different countries as they interpret it to fit their own political ends. Yeah, there's certainly a lot of room there for interpretation. One last question. Uh, for much of the rest of the world that is watching U.S.-China competition, and I think specifically uh, tech competition, 
they see this in a variety of ways, but it presents, I think, other countries, I'm thinking of economies in Asia and Africa, it prevents them both with risks uh, in that they may have to comply with sanctions. Some of this uh, competition might be a zero-sum game, which hurts other players. Um, but it also presents other countries with opportunities because they might see uh, themselves as becoming venues for you know, soaking up some of the excess capacity or some of the uh, demand uh, or supply uh, in terms of manufacturing. Um, when you think of U.S.-China tech competition broadly, what is your sense of how it impacts the rest of the world? I think it is going to be a tricky line to walk um, for uh, countries to you know, try to balance risk as well as opportunity. There was a very substantial um, view in the uh, Trump administration years, I think, that many countries that were not so directly aligned with the U.S.'s, with Trump's view of national security on China, were very eager sellers of their own technologies to China. Um, and I think one of the great credits of the Biden administration was that it went up to European partners, uh, partners in Asia, especially in Japan, to say, look, you know, this is a national security threat. They have convinced a lot of these uh, countries to sign on to the U.S. agenda that when it comes to uh, the Netherlands and uh, Japan, they are mostly going to follow through with the U.S. on uh, these uh, chip restriction uh, sanctions. Now, when it comes to the rest of the world, well, you know, unfortunately for China, uh, semiconductor technologies that China needs are overwhelmingly concentrated in the West with America's partners. And so it becomes quite a lot more difficult to uh, try to get crucial technologies that it needs, that I think the rest of the world might do very well in terms of selling goods that China needs, perhaps becoming a target for U.S. Inv uh, in terms of U.S. investment or Chinese investment, because these two great powers are um, going to be keen to you know have these uh, small countries, smaller countries on their side. Um, but I think it is going to be a tricky line to walk that companies that were thinking that my goodness you know now that our u.s competitors are now driven out of the market when it comes to a lot of semiconductor technologies um, we're going to have a great time selling to china they're now realizing that is less of an opportunity and so i think this is um you know um, things that uh, are going to shift over time and not be able to really comfortably say that you know for the most part think more things are more opportunity than risk dan wong thanks for making time for us Thank you very much, Ravi. And that was Dan Wang, an analyst at Gavakal Dragonomics. Remember, you can take a look at who we have coming up next on our website, foreignpolicy.com live. Subscribers can submit questions and help us frame these discussions in advance. Sign up, use the code FPLIVE for a discount. That's it for this week. I'm Ravi Agrawal. I'll see you next time. Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, professor of law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador, where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11th, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. 
everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant. The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk. The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries. And we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone, from local fishers to nuclear physicists, on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy. And that's what this podcast is all about. Everyday Ambassador peels back the curtains of high-stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. Like giving a gift. You want to make it tasteful. You want to make it thoughtful. You thought about the other individual. You thought about what their likes and dislikes are. Or creating a fiction. Taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day -day life allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently. Or just taking the time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. So join me and become an everyday ambassador coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen.